Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. T.S. Eliot, the famous author, is quoted as saying, Half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them, or they do not see it, or they justify it because they're absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. This morning, we're talking about the pursuit of greatness. We're talking about the endless struggle for status and significance, the endless struggle to think well of ourselves. And we have been in a series called The Life of Christ, and we've been focusing on this sentence. We want to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to be like Jesus. Well, I don't know if this happens with you. Sometimes with me, I find myself spending more time with the world, and I learn from the world how to be like the world. And the world has a lot of stuff to say about greatness, doesn't it? It's kind of a buzzword in our culture, greatness. We see it all over. I think we feel it in in social media with the the greatest post or picture or quip. I I think we feel it on the job with the next best promotion or position or project or even with our peers. Who's the funniest? Who's the most fashionable? Who's, who's the most wanted and desirable? We see it in our advertising everywhere. Nike, find your greatness. It's surely in our politics. Make America great again. And it starts so young now, doesn't it? I remember when I was a kid, it felt like it started a little later, maybe eight or nine, but now it feels like age four or five, this is push to be great in the arts and in the sports, this push for status, for the quest for significance. And it just continues on up into high school. I read an article this week from the Daily Herald. This came out this month. I just want to read it to you. Uh, Naperville North High School Junior, that's about three and a half hours north of here. Naperville North High School Junior Tessa Newman posted an online petition to change the pressure culture at her school. She thought it would draw a perfunctory thank you for sharing, but has instead drawn more than 1,900 signatures from students, alumni, and former teachers. Says Newman. There's one path to success, and every student from the age of 13 understands that path makes no exceptions. If success, as determined by the culture, is not an option for a student, anything is better than failure. The article goes on to discuss the epidemic of uber-competitiveness we are in. Says the principal of the high school, I say unequivocally, it's not just a school issue or a community issue, it's a nationwide issue. And what I want to see this morning is that it's a kingdom issue. It's a kingdom issue. And as we've walked with Jesus through the book of Luke, we've seen this come up again and again and again. Have we not? He's comparing and contrasting two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. 
And this starts right from the get-go with Jesus. Luke 1, 32-35, it says of him, it says of Jesus, he will be great. He will be great, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Luke 4, 43, says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And Luke 8, after this, Jesus traveled from town to town, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. But there's another one. There's another one who wants to make himself like the Most High, Isaiah 14, 14. And we read about him in Scripture too, Ephesians 2, 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the air. John 14, 30, the ruler of this world is coming. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded their eyes. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now the good news is, Revelation eleven fifteen. The good news is that the kingdom of this world shall become the kingdom of our Lord, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. That's how it ends. Amen. Amen. But not right now. It doesn't feel like that all the time, does it? It's the now and the not yet. It's the longing for that day. And so what do we do? What did Jesus teach us to do? He said, we pray, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come in our hearts and in our nation and in our communities and in our churches and in our schools and in the lives of our students. Thy kingdom come in our hearts. So what I want to do right now is I want to do just that. I want to pray. We pray, and then we'll dive in uh, to our verse for today. All right? Father, what a privilege it is to be together and to be in your presence. And I'm conscious and thankful for your word this morning. I'm thankful for you, Holy Spirit, the helper. And I ask that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open hearts to hear what you have to say this morning. You, you reveal things. You convict. We invite you in. We want to know what it means to be great in your eyes and not in the eyes of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So why don't we open our Bibles, we're going to be first-handers with the Word of God. We're in uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 24. If you don't have a Bible, you can find some in the seat racks in front of you, and we'd love for you to take that home if you don't own one. The page number for that Bible is 735, again, Luke 22, verse 24. And as I said, we've been in a series called The Life of Christ. We want to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. And that first blank on your notes, if we want to go ahead and fill that in, if you're following along, we just discussed it. It's the kingdom of this world versus the kingdom of God. We've seen Jesus doing that. Now, a couple of things about me when I teach, uh, I, I just tend to move. I just tend to move through uh, large passages of Scripture, and I get a little excited. I get going a little fast, so I'm going to try and slow it down. It just excites me so much. Uh, but what I, want to, what I want to tell you is in case you get lost, I just like to do this. Like, where is he going? Where are we? The message... The message in one question, in one statement here, is am I striving for status, if you're following along, am I striving for status or serving in surrender? And you can use the word significance for status there too. Am I striving for status or significance or serving in surrender? Do I want to be great in the world's eyes or in the kingdom of God? Because they're directly opposed to each other as we've just noticed. Now, another thing about me is I'm kind of a review guy. I got to hear things three, four, five times sometimes. Like, where have we been? Can we discover where we've been and what we've talked about? And can we go over that again? And so I want to do a little bit of that this morning. 
I think it helps us in many ways. It helps to shed light on a passage, like where we've been in the context of everything. So if you turn your notes over, on the back there, we've put together a map, and we've kind of estimated some of this, so it's not exact, but at least it gives you an idea. And I just want us to imagine what it would have been like to be on the move with Jesus. Uh, the banners, I love, I love the picture up here. We just have to remember, they've been walking. They've been walking 25, 30, 35 miles at a time sometimes. And Ray Vanderlaan, a, a, a teacher, he uses this phrase, and he titled a series after that. He said, in the dust of the rabbi. And so disciples would be with their rabbi. Teachers uh, would be with their students. And students would be like white on rice with their teachers. They're just following them wherever they go. And the dust coming up off the ground and be in their face in the dust of the rabbi, the dust of the rabbi, and they're just following. Now, a couple things about this map, just to give you an idea, from Tyre, which is up in the northwest corner there, to around Capernaum is roughly 35 miles. You might just jot that down. And from Jerusalem to Capernaum, Jerusalem is down, down south a bit, is roughly 85 miles. That just gives you an idea of the ground they've been covering. Let's go back to Luke 5, where Peter, James, and John are called into ministry. This is where it all starts. And it says they're at the lake of Gennesaret. You see that city, Gennesaret? Also the Sea of Galilee. And Peter, James, and John, they're called to ministry. If you remember, they hold in a huge load of fish. They were fishing, they couldn't catch anything, and Jesus comes along, and they get this huge load. And Peter just falls to his knees. He says, I'm a sinful man. He can't believe it. Or what about when, uh, when Jesus is teaching the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount? They say it happens in this same area. And it says that people came as far as from Tyre and Judea. You see the distance people are traveling. In Luke 7, we learn that they went down to Nain. You see Nain on the map. And Jesus raises a widow's son. The disciples are with him. He brings the dead back to life in Nain. And then he's up on the Sea of Galilee again. And he's calming the storm. The wind and the waves are subject to his voice. And then he's in Bethsaida. You see Bethsaida? And he feeds 5,000 plus with five loaves. And then he's transfigured on what could have been Mount Tabor. And then he's down in Bethany, Mary and Martha's hometown. It says he runs into 10 lepers in the area of Samaria and Galilee, somewhere in between there, and he heals all 10, makes them clean. Just outside of Jericho, he changes the life of a powerful tax collector, Zacchaeus, and he heals the blind beggar Bartimaeus near Jerusalem. Let's consider two to three years, two to three years on the move these guys have with Jesus. Instant access to the greatest leader and teacher ever to walk the face of the earth. He's meeting needs. He's performing miracles. He's teaching with authority. He's healing with power. Luke 9.43 specifically says that they were marveling at all he was doing. No kidding. And what are they feeling? What's stirring in their hearts as this is going on? I'm with him. <laughs> I'm with this guy. This thing is going viral. <laughs> Get on board. Guys, get on board. It's going big. Don't miss your spot at the table. Get on, get on. Greatness. You feel that? You feel that pursuit? Greatness. No one's ever done anything like this. We're in, we're in. But Jesus, it's a little different with him. It's a 
little different with him. He's saying things like take up your cross and deny yourself. He says things like foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of, the man, son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And in Luke 9, 21, after he fed the 5,000 in Bethsaida, he withdraws. He doesn't start a campaign. Tells no one. Says the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected. And after he's transfigured, quite possibly on Tabor, he says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And in Luke 18, right before he heals the blind beggar near Jerusalem, he foretells his death a third time. He says, I'll be mocked and shamefully treated. I'll be spit upon. I'm going to be flogged. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Greatness. Greatness. So James and John, they want to call down fire from heaven when people aren't listening. Should we, should we teach us we call down fire from heaven? We can do that. He's like, no, 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 no. We're not calling down fire from heaven. And they say, hey, let's get the children away from him. He's got important things to do. And he says, no, no, let the children come. And they can't believe it when he takes time to talk with a Samaritan woman at a well. Disciples, the disciples, they're ready for something to go down. They're ready to overthrow a regime by force. But Jesus, he's preparing for something so much greater. He's preparing to give himself. He's preparing to fulfill everything that has ever been written about him in the scriptures for the sake of the entire world. And he's been talking about it again and again. The day drew near for him to be taken up. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Speaks of his departure, his exodus. And so he enters Jerusalem on a donkey. You with me? You remember the story? He enters Jerusalem on a donkey, and there's palm branches, and they're laying stuff out. He weeps over the city, and he prepares for the Passover meal, which he's going to eat with his disciples, which he's longed. He's longed to eat with his disciples. This is the culmination of his ministry. This is the evening before Good Friday. It's all happening right before the eyes of the disciples. He's instituting communion, the bread and the cup. My body, my blood, we're in the room with him. You there? We're on the precipice of completely changing the way that the world works. But otherwise, it's just a normal and uneventful Thursday evening. <laughs> I've been to some good dinner parties, but this dinner party here He's with his disciples. He got him. And what happens? Let's read. Let's read verse 24. It says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Ah, dispute. So fitting for the occasion. <laughs> An argument about who's the greatest. And if I'm Jesus here, I just feel like I'm like, guys, guys, remember? Remember what we talked about? Like whoever would come after me would deny himself. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man? Guys, remember? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he forfeits himself? And these guys are completely missing the point. And in the verse just before, Jesus has talked to them he says, one of you is going to betray me. And I love what Joel Green says here. He says, although one of the 12 will betray Jesus, Luke suggests in this ironic way that all 12 of them betray his basic kingdom message, 
with its immediate implications for issues of status and position. They all, they all betray him. I want us to see a couple of things here. First thing I want to see, if you're following along in the notes, is God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Praise the name of the Lord our God. This is the way he works. Anybody feeling ordinary? Sometimes I am. Quite a bit I am. Feeling pretty ordinary. But this is the way he works all the time. Did these guys miss it? They missed it. Do we miss it? We miss it. We miss it a lot. Is there grace? There's grace. Praise the Lord. There's grace. And he's just in the business of using ordinary people again and again. The second thing I want us to notice is this word dispute, dispute or argument or quarrel. Guys, I want us to feel what the kingdom of this world feels like. In verse 23, what's going on? In verse 23, they're questioning, one of you is going to betray me. And what, is it me? Is it him? Is it, is it me? Is it me? It's not me. Couldn't be. Is it, is it him? Is it me? Who's going to betray? And then what do they do in the next verse? The very next verse. They're quarreling about who's the greatest. It's, couldn't be me. It's not me. I've done this and this. And this. I'm the greatest. I'm, I'm the greatest. That's what the king of this world feels like. It's no solid footing. Am I, am I in? Am I out? Am I in? Am I out? I'm in. I'm in. I'm out. I'm in. I'm, am I, I'm in. Is it, am I still good? Do I have a place? I'm in. I'm in. You're in. And I'm in. And you're just kind of like back and forth. There's no solid footing. Questioning, disputing, wondering, proving. This, this word dispute is the same word that's used in 1 Timothy 6.4 when the scripture says they have an unhealthy interest in controversies and disputes or quarrels about words. And what results here, it says, listen to this, these descriptive words, this is what results from these disputes or quarrels. Envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people. This is what the kingdom of this world feels like. And this isn't the first time this has come up. I don't have time to go through all the verses, but you might just jot down in your notes, Luke 9, 46, Right after Jesus is transfigured, the scripture talks about this. Matthew 18, 1 through 4, the disciples ask this question. Mark 9, 33, when it talks about this, it talks about Jesus asking, hey, what were you guys talking about? And they're so embarrassed, they, they, they just stay silent. They were talking about who's greatest. Just... Matthew 20, 21, you might remember this is, this is where the mother of James and John comes up to Jesus and says, I request that my two sons sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in the kingdom. And what does the scripture say the other guys did? It says, and when the ten heard about this, they were indignant. Of course they were, absolutely. Like, what's the deal here? I thought we were together, and then you guys are going to sit at their right and left? Envy, strife, suspicion, constant friction. This is what the kingdom of this world feels like. And it's not so much this idea of, you know, an argument about who's the greatest. Well, I'm the greatest, well, you're the greatest, and I'm the greatest. But more this internal kind of posturing and posing and name dropping and, and kind of the idea of who's the greatest now? Who has the status now? 
Now that one of us is going to betray him, who's the greatest now? This is new. Who's the greatest now? Or now that Peter is the rock, who's the greatest now? Or now that James and John had the gall to request to be at his left and right. I wish I thought about that. But now that they requested that and they're probably going to get it, now who's the greatest? Now who's the greatest? Now that Pastor Steve has his doctorate, (laughs) now who's the greatest? Now that Pastor Brian preached a phenomenal message, Now that Pastor Jeff knows at least 200 more people than I do, (laughs) now who's the greatest? Now who's the greatest? Yeah? In all seriousness, if you think I don't, I don't stand up here week after week, and even now, and I'm not tempted by this to be the greatest, to be the greatest, to go after it, I'd be kidding myself. And we see it all over Scripture. This theme runs everywhere. Simon the Magician wants the power, wants to purchase the power of the Spirit in Acts 8. Matthew 23, 1 through 12, the scribes and the Pharisees do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love the place of honor at the feast. They love the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplace. I want us to feel this. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty two. Paul has had it with the Corinthian church. They're being tempted by this power, and he's had it. And he just goes off on a rant about his accolades. It's, it's phenomenal. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. He says, are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one, he says. And then he says, I'm talking like a madman. In the scripture, you can read it. He says, I'm talking like a fool. I'm a better Christian with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings. And it's this idea that greatness comes from the best seat at the table. It comes from the greetings in the marketplace. It comes from having better labors. So if you're following along in the notes, be more, do more, and know more. The next best thing, and the next best thing, and the next best thing. Sometimes when I'm studying scripture, a tool of interpretation that's been helpful to me that I'd, that I'd pass on to you, it's, it's one among many, but it's the law of first mention. And so we, uh, we just look at, where does this happen elsewhere in Scripture, which we've done, but then where does this happen for the first time? And, and how does that shed light on everything else? And for this, it's, it's pretty easy to spot. It's right at the beginning. Genesis. Genesis 3. God says, don't eat the fruit. Remember this? Don't eat the fruit. And the serpent comes to Eve and says, did God really say don't eat the fruit? And Eve says, well, yeah, he said, he said you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. And the serpent says, you're not going to die. For God just knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll what? You'll be like God. You'll be like the Most High. You'll see like he sees. You'll be all powerful, almighty. You'll be the greatest. Even Jesus is tempted with this in the same way in Luke 4, 5 through 8. The devil led him up to a high place. He showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. He said, I give you their authority and splendor if you, what? If you do it my way. If you worship me. If you do it the way of the kingdom of the world, he says. And what does Jesus say in return? He quotes Deuteronomy. He says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And if we think, guys, if we think that the evil one is going to come after us in any different way 
then he went after them, then he went after Jesus. We're kidding ourselves. He's going to come after us in the same way, and we can see it at work all around us. And he wants nothing more, the evil one, the tempter, he wants nothing more than to ravage and tear apart families and relationships and churches and marriages. The scripture says, watch out, be on your guard. And he wants to just, just tear us apart with stuff like this. And it gives me righteous anger. I don't know if it gives it to you, but that's what he wants. And, and the father says, no, no, there's no life in that. There's no life in that. So if you're following along in your notes, the deceiver tempts us to strive after leadership positions in his kingdom. And you might even put parentheses around leadership positions, you know, because they're not really leadership positions. They're just what he thinks, he wants us to think are leadership positions. This is good to go after, this will be good. Leadership positions in his kingdom. Now, I love Jesus for many things, and one of the things I love him for is that he's just straightforward, and he just puts it on the table. High challenge, high grace, high invitation. He just calls it like it is. So let's read together what he says. It's on your notes. This is verse 25 and 26. It says, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. A few things that I want us to notice in these two verses. I want us to notice the word benefactors. I want us to notice not so with you. And then I want us to notice what he calls us to become. The youngest and the one who serves. I also want us to notice the preposition over. Exercise lordship over them. So benefactors over, and then he says become like the youngest, become like the one who serves. So what's this term benefactors? What's this mean? It's just how the elite operated in the Roman world. There were deficiencies in the city treasury. The elite gave generous gifts. In return, they were given honor, prestige, positions, and this pattern just pervaded the ancient world. Gifts brought obligations for service and honor. Make sense? And so this helps us actually understand what's going on when James and John, they want to take the seat at the right and left. They're just operating as the world operates at that time. Hey, we'll do this for you, and you give us these positions, right and left. Jesus says, no, 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 not not so with us. In the kingdom of God, we don't operate that way. In our family, it's not how we do things. That's how the kings of the Gentiles do it. The kingdom of this world is under the, the control of the evil one. They do things that way. There's a way that seems right to a man, but it brings death. Let me tell you, says Jesus, let me tell you what brings life. Become as the youngest. Become like a little child. Children, children have the lowest social standing. They receive from the hand of their parent their food, their comfort, their clothing, Even their significance and their status, they receive that from their parent. Now, they learn quickly, don't they, how to do it the other way. But when it starts, where does that come from? It comes from from their parent. And in Luke 1, talking about Jesus, it says that he has come 
to fill the hungry with good things, to exalt those of humble estate. The rich, we're talking about posture here, the rich are sent away empty. The proud have their thoughts scattered. The mighty are eventually brought down from their throne. Those who are healthy don't need a doctor. I've come, says Jesus, I've come to seek and save the lost. And he says, let the children come. And when he says this, because he says it a lot, let the children come to me. He's saying, let those who have an understanding of their great need rather than their greatness come. Let those who have an understanding of their dependence, their lack of being able to go it on their own, let them come like a child. Become like a child. Become like the least. Now, Jesus is a master teacher, and as a master teacher, he uses pictures and images all the time, and so we can remember easily, oh, a child. I can picture that, a child. And he gives a couple other uh, images here, and for this, I'm going to need a volunteer, and I think, uh, I think Eric Woolbright is going to help us out. Yes, he is. So we'll give him a big round of applause as he comes up. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. You're, you're, you're courageous. <laughs> yep. yep. So you've been coming to Cherry Hills how long, for those of you who, us who don't know you? About 14 years. About 14 years. You're an elder here. And, uh, and you root for which baseball team? Cardinals. The Cardinals. Okay. Okay, well, I'm a Cubs fan. I know. Can this still work out? It can. It can work Maybe. out. Maybe. By God's grace. By God's grace, it can work out, he says. <laughs> All right. Been coming here for 12 years. Okay, well, let's do this. This is my favorite part here. Okay, this is where we're going to show these different postures. So it says, it says that they lord it over, right? Benefactors, and they lord it over in that verse. And so I'm just going to get up here. And Eric, you just stay down there as a Cardinals fan. That'll be, that'll be good. Just down there. And, and if you um, maybe can get my water for me over there, just get my water because I'm a little thirsty, parched. And thank you very much. You just stay there. I've got some more things for you to do. And uh, don't mess things up while you're down there. Okay? Thanks. You put that back. I'm just going to lord it over you for a little longer. If, if you don't mind calling me your majesty, uh, your royal munificence. Sure. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Did I go overboard? A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> over. We get, the, we get the picture, right? Over. And we can do this in a lot of different ways without even knowing it. It might not be that absurd and extreme, but like in, our, in our parenting and in how we treat people, just lording it over. Now, what's this other thing he says? He says, become like servants. And the word that he uses here is a word for table waiters, or servants. And so now, here I am with Eric, and I can uh, come to grips with the fact that he roots for the Cardinals and I the Cubs, and I'm on eye level with him, and I'm not above him, and I just, maybe I lead Eric still, but I'm going to say, how can I, how can I serve you today? What can I do for you? How can I come alongside? What is it that you need? How can I serve you? And we as, as, as parents, as parents in the room, sometimes we got to do this like this, don't we? Because we got to be at eye level. But that's much different, isn't it, than like this. It's a different posture. But then Jesus, what does he do? In the book of John, it tells us in this same scenario when he's talking he's at the Last Supper, what does he do before the Last Supper starts? He does one better. And he says, he says, he gets a basin. He gets a towel. He stoops below. It's not over. Not eye level. He stoops below. And he gets a basin and a washcloth, and he, and he dips it in. Eric, you took a shower today? I did. Good, yeah. <laughs> now, I'm not going to wash your feet, but we get the picture over beneath. Thanks, Eric. 
Appreciate it. In my kingdom, in our family, this is how we do it. He was least among you is great. Whoever is last of all and servant of all is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I came not to be served, but to serve. I was uh, doing, doing some work on this on Friday. Man, it's been a great weekend, hasn't it? Just the weather's been phenomenal. Uh, and I decided to go out for a walk, and I was, I was praying, asking the Lord, what, what do I need to hear? What do we need to hear from your word here? And uh, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a nature kind of person, and I just connect with God in that way. I don't know if even if you were walking in today, you're just looking up at the sky, man, it's not a cloud in the sky. And uh, it's like the perfect temperature, at least it was on Friday in the 70s. And there's just a slight breeze. And I just got a little bit overwhelmed. And I was just thinking, man, this is amazing. All creation, all creation is, is proclaiming your greatness right now. And you made this. And I was thinking about his sovereignty and the fact that he reigns over it all. And all the things, all the blessings. And I was just getting a bit overwhelmed. And I, I was just thinking to myself, if anyone... If anyone deserves to be up there, if anyone deserves to be there, who deserves, who deserves it? Sam, if anyone. And I was thinking, what is it, what is it that I love about Jesus? And I got to thinking about his sovereignty and the fact that he rose from the dead, and the fact that he created all things, and his holiness, and his authority. Now, I'm in awe of a lot of that. I'm in awe of it, but I love him. I love him because he stooped low. I love him because when he could have gone for the next best thing, and the next best thing, if anyone could have gone after the next best thing, he didn't. And he thought of you, and he thought of me. He stooped low. I love him for that. Verse 27, for who is greater? The one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? There's a way that seems right to a man, isn't there? Seems right. But I am among you, says Jesus, as one who serves. And it's not that we don't lead and lead boldly, but it's about the way in which we lead. It's the, the mystery that leadership in large part means to be led by the Father and sometimes, frequently, to places we don't want to go. It's not this upward mobility. It's, it's the downward way of Jesus. And who, whose job is it to exalt? Philippians 2 says he made himself nothing and God, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God does that for us. He exalts us and he will in proper time. We don't need to be more, do more, know more, strive after supposed, supposed leadership positions and the kingdom of this world. No, no, we just need to run after him. So if you're following along, we need to be with. We need to be with instead of be more. We need to listen and then serve. 
We need to be with. Listen. Listen. This is my beloved son, says the father. Listen to him. What's he called you to do? What's he gifted you to do? What's he asking you to do? And friends, friends, can I just say this? This is a great word for us. It might be something small. It might be something small, but it'd be good. Whatever he's asking you to do, it could be the next small thing, but it'd be good because he knows how he made you and what he created you to do. So let's wrap this up with these last three verses that in some ways can get a little bit tricky. Uh, Let me read them. I'll start with verse 28. Let's read here. It says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. First point, first point, you've stood by me in my trials. He says that to the disciples, you've stood by me. God uses the weak, the ordinary, the clueless at times in his kingdom. He says, guys, you stood by me. Guys, you, you, you run the race. You may have missed it several times along the way, but you realize this is a marathon and not a sprint. And for anyone who is here today, anyone who thinks that they've messed it up or they didn't get it right, or they're embarrassed, like highly embarrassed, hear this. God is not the kind of God that lords it over us. And he doesn't oust people when we make mistakes. No, he redirects us. And he says, come on, come on, stay with me. Come on, stay with me, stay with me. And if we turn from him, he's a gentleman. He's not going to come up, come, come up and say, hey, come on, let's go. Hey. He's a gentleman. He's just going to let us. But he says, stay, you're, the, you're those that stayed with me. You stayed with me. You didn't always get it right. You stayed with me. That's good news. That's good news for us. The second point, he says, I confer on you a kingdom. Full circle, back to kingdom talk here. And here's the thing we need to know here. We don't have to earn a place in his kingdom. We don't have to strive for it. All of you who, who are weary and tired from striving after supposed positions in the kingdom of this world, hear this good news. Just as the Father gave the kingdom to Jesus, so he gives it to us. He gives us the keys to the kingdom. He's pleased to give us the kingdom, he says. How open-handed is our God with what he has? How open-handed. All I have is yours. So come eat and drink at my table. If you're following along in the notes, our great God and King freely gives leadership positions in his kingdom. And these are the positions that mean the most. He gives them. Now what about this last bit? See here, you might say, see here, what's this? The disciples are going to sit on thrones and they're going to judge the tribes of Israel? Like, what's that about? And I got to admit, that'd be pretty odd, wouldn't it? Like, if we just spent all this time saying, not in our family, like, we do it this way and we do it this way. And then he's like, okay, now you go judge on thrones and wag your finger. But that's not what's going on at all. This is, this is one of my favorite parts of this verse. This is the beauty of Scripture. See, the eating and drinking at my table is a reference. It's a reference to the Last Supper and the marriage feast of the Lamb. He says, and we quote this often around communion time, I tell you, says Jesus, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. 
the wedding feast. We long for that day. The sitting on thrones and the judging, it's a reference. It's a reference to the judges of Israel who led the Hebrew people from roughly 1400 to 1350 BC. You can read about it in the book of Judges. They were leading. They were leaders. It's a picture of leadership. And the 12 tribes of Israel, just a reference. It's a reference to the original plan. The people of God, blessed to be a blessing to all nations, now fulfilled in the 12 disciples of Jesus and the church. The fulfillment of the original plan, through you all nations will be blessed. The point, the point I'm giving you leadership responsibility, says the king of kings. I'm giving you leadership. You're a household of believers. You're a royal priesthood with responsibility. And how will you lead? How will we lead? Not by lording it over. Not by wagging our finger. Not through power and significance. Not through striving after status. We'll lead from here. We'll lead by serving. We'll lead by loving. Oh, we'll be bold. We'll be bold. And we'll be confident. And we'll go out in the power of the Spirit. But we'll lead from our knees. And we'll be the greatest servants of all. That's how we'll lead. Because that's how our leader led. That's how he did it. So I want to give us just a couple of minutes. I know that uh, sometimes when I teach, it can be a little fire hoserific. <laughs> so I wonder if we can just be still in the presence of the Spirit because he's with us. And just focus on these two words I've put at the bottom of the message notes, striving and serving. And one of the best things that we could do today is we just be honest with God. That's what he longs for his children to do, just be honest. I wonder if we can name any areas we're striving. We're just going after some stuff in the kingdom of this world. If we can name any areas that he's called us to do something. And maybe we've just said no to it. We're like, no, no, because we've been going after something bigger and something better. We said no. And this maybe it's just something small. But he's calling us to it. We know it. It might be helpful to write it down. It's been helpful for me just to write that down. I can go back to it. I want to give you just a couple minutes. Allow the spirit to reveal some things.